All right, so this is Pack Talk Podcast, and we're doing a Q&A podcast. We've recently had a lot of uh, social media posts getting a lot of questions. So what we're trying to do today is collect a group of those questions and then kind of talk through them uh, so that we can answer questions as best as possible. The issue with the social media is sometimes it limits our responses um, sometimes we're not able to get as much information through uh, via written response uh, than we can like a verbal response. So we're trying to have different tactics to try and answer your questions. So having the question and answer podcast is one of those ways. We're also going to be making, and we have done a couple already, very short uh, responses to certain questions. So we're trying to pick out a number of questions that are pretty common throughout the uh, social media posts and answer those. And while I'm talking about social media real quick, do uh, understand that a lot of the shorter videos that we post on social media is just a clip or a glimpse of one piece of training that we're doing with the dog. So when we're training a dog, it takes three, four, six, eight weeks, however long that we're spending with that dog to take them from start to finish. And whenever we post a clip of social media, it's a very uh, small sliver of time uh, in the overall scheme of that dog's training. So do keep in mind that, like I've talked about on other podcasts and other videos, training progressions. So understanding where you're going to start at, where you're going to finish at, what are your training goals. And then hopefully these segments of video that we try to post to educate can help you understand various situations or what to do in those situations with your dog as you step through that training progression. Now, I have talked about training progressions before on our YouTube channel. We've done a live video where I have a whiteboard and I'm basically talking through a training progression, but we've also done it in a podcast, episode 27, 28, where we talk about learning theory, how do dogs actually learn? How can we take those principles and apply it to our overall training progression? That is the uh, the kind of big strategic picture to keep in mind that when you see these posts, it's a sliver of time and to have a overall training progression in your head. And if you need help developing a training progression for what you're working on with your dog, you can reach out to us. We'd be more than happy to help you. All right. But the first question today is uh, not sure how the e-collar works. What is the point? So we get this question quite a bit. E-collar, remote collar, right? Unfortunately, some people call it a shock collar. That's not what it is. I don't even like the term e-collar or electronic collar just because it has some negative uh, thoughts with that verbiage. I prefer the term remote collar because that's what it actually is. We're using a remote, we're using a collar, uh, to remotely communicate with our dogs. But the question, not sure how the e-collar works. What is the point? So we'll break it up. How does the e-collar work? There's a ton of different remote collar manufacturers out there. Me personally, we like to use Dogtra uh, for us, it's just been the best over time to use. It's the most uh, user-friendly to use, in my opinion. And then the way that the remote collar works is that it provides a sensation to the dog, which is very similar to that of a TENS unit. 
So if you've ever been to the doctor's office or the chiropractor's office and they put those pads on you and then they start to pump some uh, electricity through that to stimulate your muscles, that's the same thing that the e-collar does. The e-collar cannot cause damage to tissue, whether you're a human or a dog, uh, because of the way it's designed. It just can't get to that level of amperage to actually cause damage and a lot of people will say well it burns or it does this or it does that that's not true because it literally cannot even reach those levels uh, to do that right but what it can do is intensify its stimulation of the muscle make the muscle that it's connected to contract more or contract less so that's kind of the overview of how does the e-collar work we did do a podcast that deep dives more in detail on the remote collar but that's the quick and easy of it. And uh, the second half of the question, what is the point? Well, the thing about the remote collar is it gives you and your dog freedom, freedom of communication, right? It also gives you and your dog safety. It, it enables you to have a, a safe experience with your dog in a variety of scenarios. So basically, you know, what it does is like allows you to communicate to your dog at a distance. So if you're, if, if you like to take your dog off leash to the beach and your dog likes to run a distance away from you and you call them back to you, you know, you can use that remote collar to help communicate, to come back to you. You can also finely tune the level of the remote collar to match the environment that you're in to make your communication with your dog effective, right? Whether that's accountability for disobedience of something that you've asked them to do or, as a simple communication tool uh, to execute certain behaviors, right? There's a lot of different ways that you can use a remote collar. Um, And so that's just a brief summary of like, what is the point of that? Now, with that being said, you cannot, it is not right to grab a remote collar, put it on your dog and all of a sudden start using it. That's not right. That's an improper way to use a remote collar. As with any training tool, they can be used properly or improperly. So improper way would be to buy one and then just throw it on your dog, start using it, and assume that your dog just knows what to do. That's not right. What you need to do is follow a thorough conditioning process that is a part of your overall training progression where your dog can learn to understand the remote collar on a level that they can understand. Remember that your dog is not a verbal being right? They do not communicate with verbal language like we do. Like I'm communicating to you right now, whether you're watching this on YouTube or listening to this uh, on a podcast platform, right? You can understand what I'm saying because we are a verbal species and we communicate verbally. Dogs don't do that. Their primary language is body language, right? So as a piece of the overall training progression, remote collar conditioning, (coughs) excuse me, an application is just one little sliver of the overall progression, right? And if you do it properly, it makes your communication uh, better with your dog. If you do it improperly, it can degrade your relationship. It can create superstitious associations and it can create problems later, just like with any training tool, right? We have to use it properly. So uh, go back to our podcast we've done in the past on remote collar, right? Facts or fiction uh, to deep dive on how to properly condition a remote collar. I go through the whole process in that video. I also go through it in a couple of our YouTube videos and then some of the deeper reasons as to uh, why you need to follow a a specific conditioning process. But once that conditioning is done, 
the remote collar should just be an everyday tool that uh, your dog is just used to wearing even if you don't have to use it. So I'm wearing a watch right now and even if I don't have the watch on, I still feel like it's there. I'm just so desensitized to it being there. That's the way we want um, the remote collar to be for our dogs, right? And there's also with the remote collar a ton of different features on different ones, a ton of different contact points that you can change out for your specific dog and their coat type. So a lot more details that can be gone into with the remote collar. So if you guys have questions, you can refer to our other videos or podcasts, or you can always reach out to us. We'll be more than happy to help. But a big red flag to me is if you're trying to work with a trainer and then they put the remote collar on the dog the first thing, right? For us, it starts maybe day 10 or so. Somewhere around day 10, we'll start using the remote collar for the conditioning process, right? So enough on that one, all right? The next question that we have is uh, asking, <clears throat> why a correction if he's anxious and scared? Don't need that when you're trying to build his confidence. So this is in reference to, I'm assuming, a video where we're taking a insecure dog through an uncomfortable situation. <clears throat> and again, this is a sliver of time in this dog's overall training progression. So if you don't understand the full training progression, you probably don't understand exactly what's going on. We're trying to explain it the best we can. But basically, this person's asking, why is there a correction if he's anxious and scared? We don't need that when trying to build his confidence. Well, here's the thing. Uh, prior to taking a dog out to a distracting area for socialization work, first of all, you have to complete your training progression up to that point, which for us includes the remote collar conditioning and accountability. So we're teaching that dog what we expect of them, and then we're teaching them what happens if they disobey those expectations, which is accountability. But also with an insecure dog, because uh, they're asking, uh, why a correction if he's anxious and scared? So a couple things, when you're talking about an extremely insecure dog that that is shutting down, not able to go out and into the yard, not able to walk down the street, <clears throat> the first thing this kind of dog wants to do when it's, with, when it's with its owner before any type of structure or training is implemented is run away, get away, go back to the house, right? So they go into deep flight behavior. So what we have to do is over time, stop the flight behavior for most situations, right? So if we take the dog out somewhere, once they've reached that point in the training progression and, uh, you know, they're nervous or whatever, and they're out of position, they could trigger back into flight mode. So that's why it's very important for us to hold them accountable for, for departing a position. So they know that, Hey, what I'm supposed to be doing right now is just walking next to mom or dad. And if I go too far away from them or anything like that, you know, if I go out of position, I'm going to be held accountable for that. So what it does for the dog mentally is help to build up their confidence in staying with mom or dad versus going into flight mode, right? And then it will also help them to understand that people walking by them, dogs walking by them, trash cans that they're walking by, stuff like that that used to terrify the dog, these things start to become desensitized, right? So the dog starts to not even care about them. So you do have to reach a certain point in your training progression to understand that uh, the accountability is fair at that point. But, you know, obviously building up to that does take time and uh, a lot of work to get there. But once you get there, then it is fair to actually provide a correction to reinforce staying in proper position. That's for that dog's safety. All right, next question is going to be, 
I have a Cane Corso who decides sometimes she doesn't want to be food-driven and her nose redirects her. She knows all of her commands, but sometimes just doesn't care. Any advice on how to redirect her while training? All right, so I'm going to try and break this down. <clears throat> so if you have a Cane Corso, it doesn't matter what kind of dog you have. But uh, sometimes they don't want the food. They don't want to be food-driven. Her nose redirects her. So they're either having some type of displacement activity or the engagement is not high enough, right? Or the food drive is not high enough to help us complete certain aspects of training. This person's saying that they, she knows all the commands, but sometimes just doesn't care, right? So any advice on how to redirect her while training? So to me, this comes down to what stage of the training progression are we in? Uh, because if we're in uh, fundamental phases of training, we need that food drive to be very high so that we can build up their understanding of what we expect. But this person's saying that the dog knows all of their commands. So if the dog understands all the obedience, right, but sometimes just doesn't care, well, now it's time to introduce accountability to that dog so that they know if we ask them to do something um, that that needs to be done, probably for that dog's safety, right, depending on the scenario, for the dog's safety, for the dog's respect, those types of things. So what I would do is if we already have a good uh, level of engagement and uh, if the dog already knows their commands, it's now time for me to progress into accountability. And what I'm going to do for that is use leash corrections at first. So let's just take a sit, for example. If I ask the dog to sit and they just don't sit, I'm going to say no. Quick pop and release on that leash. As soon as they sit, I'm going to say good and then reward them for that. Okay, That's how I'm going to introduce accountability. And I'm going to do that for every type of uh, obedience that we're working on. But with that being said, the dog does really need to know the command. So if I can't easily lure that dog into a sit, if I can't say the word sit and the dog sits, that dog is not ready for the accountability piece. So you have to make sure that they really know the commands so that the accountability is fair and that it's understood properly. Now, <clears throat> if you're trying to go through this process and you realize that the dog doesn't know all their commands, well, then it's time to hone in on those commands. And what I would recommend doing is uh, if there is a food drive issue, only feed the dog all their food through your hand. Don't allow them to eat the food in like a bowl or anything like that. It's got to be through your hand. So that's at least two times a day where you're taking time to do training, the morning meal and evening meal. If there's a food drive issue, I'm going to take that food that I would normally put in their bowl. I'm going to put it in my pocket or like in a bait bag or a fanny pack or something like that. And I'm going to go out and train with the dog. Now, if the dog is wanting to blow me off or walk off to the side or something like that, in that case, I'm going to keep the dog on a leash. So they only have an option of staying with me, taking food from me. And then if we're not doing that, if you're not willing to work with me, then we're going to go back inside and you're going to be managed probably by going into your kennel or going onto your spot, something like that, which means you have to actually be able to stay on your spot. So that's some troubleshooting I would be doing in that case. First of all, again, just a quick recap. If I'm in this situation where my dog knows the commands, but the food drive is not really there, well, if they know the commands, now it's time for me to progress my training into accountability so I can teach them that there are consequences for disobedience. But if they don't really know the commands to that level to start introducing the accountability yet, I'm going to go back 
make sure that all of the food that's given to the dog comes directly from my hand so that I can increase their desire to want to pay attention to me and their food drive while they're with me. And then once I rework through that, I'll progress into the accountability piece after that. So kind of the, the ongoing theme here is really understanding where you're at in your overall training progression, really understanding what your training progression is, right? So knowing what the first step to the last step is, and you can go back, listen to our podcast number 28, that's our training progression, and you can write those down and then kind of check them off as you go through them, right? All right. Next question. Please help. Any advice about a dog that only does naughty things when no one is watching? I only find evidence, but very rarely catch her in the act. She's very sweet and gets tons of love and affection from me, but her character is to be extremely opportunistic and sly. If I even scold her in a soft voice, she wets the floor. Please help. I've raised 15 well-behaved, excellent dogs in my life, never encountered this problem until now. What's going on? All right, so a couple things that just pop out to me as I read through that. First of all, going to the root question, Any advice about a dog that only does naughty things when no one's looking? The first thing that comes to my mind with this is management. We need to implement proper management with the dog so that they're not able to be by themselves. Because if they're practicing these things when they're by themselves, we have failed to build up our expectations for them. So what I would recommend doing is keeping this dog in a kennel or an X-Pen or a spot slash place command if you're not there or if you're not paying attention to them. And then if you are around, right, have them on a leash with you or keep them in the same room as you are. That way you can observe them and they can't get into things that they, you know, shouldn't be doing. And if they do start doing those things, you're able to easily correct or redirect them into doing the proper thing. So that's the first thing I would do, which is just apply management to not allow the dog to be by themselves, right? So they can do these things. Uh, second thing that jumps out is, uh, if I even scold her in a soft voice, she wets the floor. So that just tells me that the dog is extremely submissive. So I wouldn't do any scolding, right? So if I catch them in the act of doing something that's not right, I'll just walk over there, put a leash on them, walk them somewhere else, redirect them, right? Because if I start scolding them, for example, Obviously, they go into extreme submissive behavior. They pee the floor. They wet the floor. So we don't want the dog going into that level of submission. So what we want to do is kind of, you know, just walk over there, put a leash on them, take them somewhere else, redirect them off of whatever they're doing, and then continue to build up a training progression where we are able to give accountability without the dog going into that extreme submissive uh, type behavior. And the way I would do that is just very slowly... Once the dog understands my expectations for whatever it is, we could use obedience as an example. We could use a down as an example. So if I'm teaching a dog how to down, you know, I'm luring with food and then I'm putting the command in front of my lure. So I'll say down, I'll lure them into a down. Once they go down, I say good. I give them the food, right? After a certain number of repetitions of that, where the dog is comfortable just moving down, then what I'll do is just apply very slight leash pressure in a downward motion on that dog so they start getting comfortable just moving downward with the leash and I can even use a food lure so I would attach I would put the leash pressure on 
use a food lure to lure that dog into a down. Once they're down, immediately as soon as they're down, the leash slacks, the food is given to the dog. And that's kind of how I'm going to get that dog very used to uh, just very little leash pressure, very little uh, preparation for accountability and corrections so that it's not a big deal later as we keep progressing. So that's what I would do in that situation. And that's kind of what's going on there. Okay. All right. Next question. What are your suggestions for teaching a deaf dog recall? So this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. I get a sip real quick. This talk, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. A dog is not a verbal being. So if you think that you have to be, your dog has to be able to hear you to know what you're saying, you're wrong because a dog is not a verbal being. It's actually a uh, physical being, right? It communicates via body language. So if a dog is deaf, it's not a huge deal, honestly. Uh, The limitations with a deaf dog are that you can't verbally call them to you at a distance once you teach them and you can't verbally direct them. So you have to be really good about your body language communication And a remote collar is going to help you out big time with this because you can use some of the different features on a remote collar to communicate with your dog at a distance. Like some remote collars have a vibrate function. So I could teach the dog that that vibrate function actually means to turn around and come back to me, right? That's kind of like their command when they're deaf. But uh, as far as how to teach a deaf dog a recall, you know, again, we're going to build out a training progression for that specifically for that dog. Um, But... Basically, at first, I'm going to keep that dog on a leash. I'm going to start luring them into recalls. And then what I'm going to do is assign some type of signal that means to come to me. So on a leash, it could be just a quick tug of the leash in my direction. That could signal the dog to move to me. And then I would get longer leashes to practice with longer leashes. So I'd start with a 6-foot leash, go to a 15-foot leash, then a 30-foot leash. That should be good enough. And just teach the dog that signal. Um, that way they know when there's just a little tug on that leash, it means to turn around and come back to me, and then they get rewarded for that, right, over time. Now, as we progress, we're going to stop using as many rewards. We're going to shift from a continuous reinforcement schedule to a random reinforcement schedule as time goes on with any dog. But in this case, once I get comfortable with the 6-foot, 15-foot, 30-foot leashes, then I would get a remote collar, probably a dog tra 280C probably, or an ARC put it on the dog, right? Have them just wear it for a couple days, get used to it. Then the first thing I would do is I'm going to attach the new stimuli in front of the old stimuli. So I'm going to put the new signal before the old signal so the dog can understand that the new signal equals the old signal. And we're going to do this through classical conditioning, which is the uh, technical way, technical term for this. So what we do, we have the remote collar on the dog. They're used to wearing it for a couple days with nothing happening. And then we're going to basically tap that vibrate function and then tug on the leash real gently. There has to be a quick pause in between the two. So I would basically tap the vibrate, pause, tug on the leash. The dog turns, moves towards me because it's something we've been doing tons of, then I reward it. And I'm going to do repetitions of that until that vibrate is uh, solidified in the dog's head to come in my direction, right? Um, So that's generally how I'm going to handle that. And then you could also have some kind of hand signal that you add in there, right? So there's a bunch of different ways you could do this, um, but the remote collar is going to be a very uh, 
consistent and easy way to incorporate for a deaf dog specifically to ensure their safety as well. Um, because also like, let's say you have a deaf dog, let's say you're hiking with them and they're a little bit ahead of you. You've got them on the remote collar. They're fine with that. You know, maybe they don't know which direction you're in. So you hit that vibrate, they turn around, they're looking for you. They don't know where you are. Maybe you're blending in with some of the landscape. So in that case, maybe you add in some kind of hand motion to kind of signal them in your direction, right? Visually. Uh, so just something else to think about. So anyway, that's, that's one way that you could uh, teach your dog a deaf dog recall, a deaf dog a recall. And uh, that's ideally what I would do. I'd definitely get to the point where that vibrate on the remote collar is the uh, recall for that dog. All right, next question is, what's the best way to house train your puppy? So uh, our podcast episode number two, I actually deep dive in uh, puppy or house training, potty training. But the quick and easy is you're going to want to implement a schedule and structure and supervision, the three S's, structure, schedule, supervision, uh, to, to build success. So house training is really about how you manage your dog. So you want to make sure that you set up your house before your puppy comes home and then kind of your schedule when they are home. Uh, really good to build the best way to uh, get them to reliably go outside and not go inside. So real quick, what you want to do with puppies, let's say you got an eight-week-old puppy. Anytime they're inside the house, they're on a leash, right? That way, if you do notice them trying to go to the bathroom, you can immediately grab the leash and take them right outside. So that's the first rule. The second thing is you want to make sure that you provide enough potty breaks throughout the day to set up them for success to be able to have the opportunity to go to the bathroom, right? An eight-week-old puppy, you cannot have them go for like five hours between potties, right? They need to go about every two hours. The rule of thumb is about one hour for every month of age. That's kind of the general rule of thumb. So, those are the first two things, right? Have them on a leash even inside the house. That way you can grab them, take them outside if you notice anything weird going on. Number two, have that schedule set up to where they have ample time to go potty. Number three, make sure that uh, their feeding times are planned out so they get to eat. They get a very short break and then you take them on a walk to help process that food, about a 10 to 20 minute walk after eating. And then your water too. You can't give them water at 8 p.m. right before you go to bed and expect them to like you know, hold it until 4 a.m., you know. You want to give them water in the evening early enough to where it's not going to be an overnight issue. And then throughout the day as you give them water, make sure you continue to give them ample time to go to the bathroom. That's really what it comes down to is building up the proper behaviors of going outside, making sure that you're managing your structure and set up properly to enable that as much as possible, right? But podcast number two, uh, Pack Talk podcast uh, episode two, has all that information in a deep dive format. Next question, what is a good way to build security and confidence in a young dog, right? So the key here, security and confidence is going to be just exposure to new things. And you're going to do that through engagement. So the first thing you want to do is make sure that your dog understands that you have good things that they want, food, right? That's going to be your best way to do that. So you do some engagement in your yard where they look at you, you say good, you give them food or you mark yes, you let them chase you for some food, right? I would keep them on a leash so they can't wander off, that kind of stuff. Once you're comfortable there, start taking a walk through your neighborhood, exposing them to the trash cans and the school buses and the kids that are walking around the playground. 
those kind of things. And again, you're just taking them by these places and you're just rewarding them with food for staying with you, for staying calm, for paying attention to you, all these types of things. And then you want to continue to increase your areas that you're traveling to. So you start in your yard, then you go throughout your neighborhood, maybe your neighborhood community center. You're doing the same thing, walking your puppy around this area, rewarding them with food for looking at you, staying with you, staying calm, right? If your puppy's ever trying to like run away, you just like lure them back to you, right? Don't let them run away because then if they're practicing running away, they're building insecurity, they're building nervousness, they're learning that that's what they should do, right? We just want them to be cool, uh, comfortable, calm, confident, relaxed as we're walking around, we're getting food rewards, we're having a good time, right? Then we're going to increase the the area that we go to. So maybe we go to a local park or we go to a local hardware store and uh, expose them to as much as possible, right? Lowe's, Home Depot, Ace Hardware, these are great places to go to because you can take your dog in there, you can walk them around in there, you can feed them food as you go through. It takes like five minutes, then you walk back out, you're good to go, right? The first time you go there, maybe you just go to the garden center area, walk through there, feed them some food, they get exposed to a couple things, good to go, roll out, right? So continuous exposure when they're young, very, very important. Now you do have to be careful because your vet will tell you don't take them out until they have all their vaccinations, So you have to kind of balance this out, right? If you wait until they have all their vaccinations, you're waiting multiple weeks to expose them to things, right? That might build insecurities later. So from my perspective, personally, as a trainer, as a dog psychologist and behaviorist, my perspective is, you know, that behavior to me, that confidence to me is a priority. So I'm going to try and balance out. I'm not going to go to places where there's a ton of dogs moving because I want to reduce my puppy's exposure to dog illnesses or diseases or viruses, but I am going to continually take them out to different places very quickly to make sure that that confidence level is continuing to grow. So that's what I would do in that case for sure. All right. Next question. What is best when you have two dogs? have them on the same side or one either side. So I'm assuming that we're talking about when you're walking dogs, right? So this, this is up to you, man. You do whatever you want. You know what I'm saying? For me personally, when I have two dogs, I like them walking on the same side. I train all dogs to walk on my left side. I'm right-handed. So if I have my dogs on my left side, it's easy for me to, you know, lock the door with my keys, unlock the door with my keys, open up something, carry something, right? The dogs are on my left side. Take a drink of my uh, Jocko Ah, with my dogs on my left side. You know what I'm saying? So that's kind of my uh, perspective on that. But I do have people that I've worked with and they have one dog on one side, one dog on the other side. That's their preference. I do have people that have two dogs on the right side. Maybe they're left-handed. That's their preference. So figure out what your preference is. To me personally, just having them both on my left side, to me that's ideal because I'm right-handed. And if they're both over here on my left side, I can navigate around things or through things with them on that side. No big deal. So uh, pick out what's best for you. Now when they're walking on my left side, they're right next to each other. They're both in heel position. There's a couple things that you got to consider, right? Sometimes they try to compete with each other. So one wants to walk just a little bit ahead. So I have to make sure that my accountability is in place so they understand that both of them are supposed to be in the same position next to me. We're both, they're both following me, right? Not one of them are leading. And then usually 
whoever wants to be closer to me is fine. Like one will be right next to me. One will be on the outside of that dog. I don't really care about that. It's whatever's comfortable for the dogs at the time. Uh, so again, kind of play around with it. But to me, both on the left side is the best way to do that. All right. <clears throat> and if you have like three, four or five dogs, I do the same thing. They all walk on my left side. All right. Next question. What if food doesn't work? My dog is so worked up for the walk. He doesn't care about food. Maybe a ball after I've worn him down, but he pulls me. And someone re responded to that and said, yes, what if my dog is super overstimulated on walks? So if we have a dog that's not interested in food because they're overstimulated on walks, well, then I got to break it down. I got to keep it simpler. First, I have to build a good walking uh, position away from a normal walk, which means I'm going to be practicing walking on my left side with a loose leash just in my backyard or somewhere else that I don't normally take a walk. It could be my driveway. And the time that I would normally go for a walk, let's say it's 20 minutes, I'll be out in my driveway walking back and forth, which might seem boring. <clears throat> but if we have our overall training progression in mind, it's actually super important because if I want to get to the point where I can walk walks through the neighborhood without leash pulling, without being crazy, I first have to get this simple exercise of walking back and forth in my driveway or back and forth in my backyard down to where the dog knows to walk on my left side, right? So let's say I'm out in my driveway, uh, you know, working on this with my dog. I'm going to use food rewards to reward them down my left side, right? To build up reinforcement history of being on my left side. If they walk like too far ahead of me, right? I'll just turn to the right. That leash will help guide that dog back to my left side. Now, let's say my dog is overstimulated and not taking food, you know? Well, that's ideally what we would do is start troubleshooting. Why is the dog not taking food? Is it because it's too excited out in the front yard and the driveway? Because if it is, I'm going to be practicing this in my backyard. The other thing I'm going to be practicing is only giving all the food the dog gets through my hand. It doesn't get to eat out of a bowl or anything like that because I need food to be more valuable so I can build up behaviors in an ideal way, right? But let's say you go through all that and uh, it's not working. In that case, the only way, uh, one of the only ways that I'm going to have as an option after that is going to be through negative reinforcement. That's a quadrant of operant conditioning, right? So you need to be comfortable operating in all four quadrants of operant conditioning to truly teach and develop good behavior, right? So I'll be using negative reinforcement, which basically means if my dog is out of position or outside of an expectation, it's going to be slightly uncomfortable to them, which for, for most dogs would be, we'll have them on like a uh, training collar, like a uh, fur saver training collar. You could use a prong collar, right? As soon as that dog is out of position, that collar starts to tighten because the leash is getting a little bit tight. And me as the handler, I'm going to turn to the right because I want the dog on my left side. I'm going to turn to the right, let that leash kind of wrap around the left side of my body and redirect the dog to my left side, right? So basically I'll be doing lots of right turns to build that dog's understanding. Like, Hey, if they, if they start going ahead of me, I'm going to turn to the right. I'm going to start walking the opposite direction of the dog. That leash is going to be tightening down that collar. The collar is going to be giving the dog a little bit of discomfort. That dog turns towards me to follow the leash and then the leash slacks. The discomfort goes away. Now the dog is reinforced and following me and walking along next to me. So it might sound easy. 
it can actually be very difficult with some dogs. It's going to take a lot of patience. But if you if you have exhausted all efforts to build up the food drive, then that would be the next course of action. Uh, now, with that being said, I'm just going to quick, take a quick break from the questions because I was talking to somebody yesterday, and they were saying that they were like talking to this positive trainer, right? I I got certified and positive reinforcement this i got certified that positive reinforcement only whatever right the positive reinforcement is one of the four quadrants of operant conditioning and again you can go to podcast number 27 where i deep dive on all four quadrants of operant conditioning and classical conditioning and the other aspects of canine learning theory but let's say we have a positive only trainer that says uh you know I use positive reinforcement. That's how we're going to, that's how, that's the only way to train dogs. That's the only fair way. Well, keep in mind, if I'm using, if I'm positive reinforcement only, and I ever withhold food from a dog, if I ever let that dog not have access to food, I'm technically operating in the negative punishment quadrant of operate conditioning. Right? So like, let's say, I'm a positive only trainer and I want to teach a dog how to sit. I'll have a piece of food in my hand. I try to lure the dog into a sit. If the dog's not doing it, I might hold that food back from the dog. If the dog's trying to get the food out of my hand, I might put it behind my back. I'm operating in negative punishment quadrant, which is withholding something the dog wants. And then I would bring that food back out and give it to the dog once they start to do the sit. So you got to be really careful. Like if you're a positive only trainer, if you're talking to one, you know, they're actually operating in other operant, uh, conditioning quadrants. Maybe they just don't know it. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but anyway, you know, back to four quadrants of operant conditioning, the positive reinforcement is one quadrant. There's also negative reinforcement, positive punishment and negative punishment. And those words might sound weird, right? Positive punishment, right? Well, in the world of operant conditioning, the scientific terminology, the word positive means to add something. The word punishment means to make a behavior less likely to occur in the future. The word negative means to remove something. The word reinforcement means to make something more likely to occur in the future. So if I'm operating in positive reinforcement, I'm doing something, I'm adding something, the word positive, I'm adding something that makes whatever that behavior is more likely to occur in the future. So if I'm training a dog how to sit and they sit and I give them a piece of food, I've added something, I've given the dog food to make the sit behavior more likely to occur in the future. The negative reinforcement, I'm taking something away. Negative, I'm removing something, I'm taking something away to make the sit behavior more likely to occur in the future, right? And that usually will be some kind of pressure via the leash. So if I pull up on the leash and then the dog sits, I slack the leash. That slacking of the leash is what I'm removing to make the sit behavior more likely to occur in the future. Right? So I'm not trying to get all sciencey on you guys right now. Uh, but I did remember that conversation I was having yesterday. And the person was a little bit confused about the positive, positive reinforcement train or whatever. Right? But a lot of times they don't know that they're actually operating in other operant conditioning quadrants as well as positive reinforcement. So podcast 27 to get more on that. All right. Next question. My dog starts panting and pulling the curtains off the windows looking for me when I go out. What do I do? So this is anxiety, separation, anxiety, probably. 
And uh, basically, your dog has developed a habit of tearing things up whenever you leave, right? So what I what would I do? I would look for ways to change that behavior. How am I going to change that behavior? By changing my structure. So probably a couple different tactics, troubleshooting tactics that I would take. Number one, providing exercise before I leave to make my dog uh, less energetic, right? So if I can make that dog tired by taking them on a walk in the morning or a bike ride or whatever, I'll do that so that they're tired when I leave, making my departure not a big deal. Another thing is I would start to implement a kennel so I could have my dog in the kennel when I leave, right? So I can manage them properly. So those are kind of the, the big ticket items to do in that situation. Implement some more management, implement some exercise, get your dog worn out, change the behavior. You got to look for ways to change your routine, change your behavior, change their behavior, right? With your behavior. Because if something's constantly happening and you're doing the same thing you've always done, you're going to get the same response from your dog. So you have to change one thing from your side of the coin to change something on their side of the coin. Okay. That's the most simple way to say that. Why do you, the next question is, why do you want to build prey drive? So I don't know what this is in reference to, but uh, there's multiple reasons why we want to build prey drive. And prey drive is the dog's natural desire to want to chase and grab things with their mouth. So I want to build up prey drive to have a higher level of engagement from my dog, right? Because a lot of dogs, when they're in prey drive, they're having a good time, right? They're enjoying that. It's releasing endorphins into their system. So if I can increase their prey drive, right, I can uh, make them want to desire certain things even more. That could make them want to desire time with me more or certain behaviors. Like if your behavior, uh, if you do a certain behavior and it allows you access to using your prey drive, you know, you might want to do that behavior more often. So those are some reasons why we would want to increase prey drive. But the first reason, uh, the first thing that kind of comes to my mind is when we're building engagement, we want to increase prey drive because a lot of times that will increase that dog's engagement very quickly. And with engagement, it could be like tug or fetch or chasing your hand with food, food in your hand. Um, and then another reason why we want to increase prey drive is so that we can play games with our dog with tug or fetch, right? And harness that prey drive and use it for things that benefit us and the dog overall, right? If your dog's chasing a squirrel, your dog's in prey drive, but is that doing anything for you? Not really, right? But if my dog's playing fetch with me, you know, we're building relationship, we're building our bond, we're increasing engagement. If the dog's playing tug with me, again, we're increasing our bond and engagement and relationship, right? So that's kind of some ways, some reasons why we want to increase prey drive and then some things we would do to use it to our advantage, right? All right, next question. Uh, <clears throat> how long do I get, how, so how do I get to this stage of calmness? with a dog who gets way too overly excited when she sees anyone. <clears throat> so I don't know what video this is in reference to, but she's asking, how do I build up calmness in my dog? And she gets excited when she sees anyone. So it sounds like a dog that loves people, gets super excited with people. So again, kind of going back to one of the earlier questions, if we always do the same thing with our dog, we always get the same response or behavior. So in this case, if my dog always, when it sees people, it gets excited. It wants to run over there because people want to pet it and all that kind of stuff. I have to change one thing in this scenario to try and alter that behavior over time. And just keep in mind that with dogs, it takes time to alter behavior. It takes time to modify behavior. So 
the first thing that comes to my mind, build engagement so that my dog is more interested in looking at me when there's new people around than it is running over to those people. I want to be more interesting to my dog than the other people are, right? Then the other thing that kind of comes to my mind is if my dog is increasing in their excitement level in the presence of other people, well, I need to withhold that dog's ability to get physical interaction from those people until it can be calm. So one of the things that can help us do that is a downstay. The downstay is a calming behavior. So let's say I'm walking through a hardware store. Someone's like, oh, what a pretty dog. My dog's getting excited. I'll tell my dog to downstay. Once it shows me that it's calm, then I can let it get pet by that person. Versus that person, I walk by and they say, oh, what a pretty dog. And my dog just runs over there, you know, kind of demanding attention from the person. The person's petting my dog. My dog's basically getting rewarded for showing excessive excitement or energy levels. So change one thing about the scenario uh, to reduce that overexcitedness. And over time, you should see it start coming down. How do you, next question. How do you teach a fearful dog when they are aggressive because of the fear? So we have a insecure dog or a dog that's scared and they've become aggressive. This has happened over time because what happens is an insecure dog doesn't really want to be messed with usually by people or other dogs. And so what happens is it gets into situations when it's younger that it doesn't want to be in. It's forced into these situations and maybe it growled one time and the growl got people to walk away from it. So it learned that, oh, if I growl, the people will leave me alone. And then that growl just over time escalates into reacting or becoming aggressive at people to keep them away so that it doesn't get put into a situation that it doesn't like. So kind of like we've been talking about, we have to change something. We have to change habits. We have to change behaviors. So I would remove any type of scenario that my dog feels like they need to react and I want to avoid those scenarios so that I can build up confidence in my dog. Then I would have a training progression where it takes me from, I'm going to go back to square one, foundational work, build up engagement, build up, you know, understanding of how to walk on a leash, build up uh, obedience behaviors, layer into accountability, layer into remote collar conditioning, then go into re-socialization work and distraction work. And by that point, my dog should have an understanding of not to react at people, not to react at things, and uh, to just remain calm next to me. And that I know to control the environment so that my dog does not feel like they have to react at things because I'm not letting things happen to them. You know what I'm saying? So fearful dog, you want to go all the way back to step one of our training progression, rebuild everything from the ground up, to reestablish uh, that dog's understanding of the world around them so they don't have to be so fearful. Now, one thing to keep in mind as you're going through your training progression, number one, it takes time. Number two, you need to have proper management built into that so your dog around the clock is managed properly so it's not practicing insecurity or nervousness or bad behaviors, right? Because maybe like a quarter of the day I'm working on stuff appropriately, and then three quarters of the day, my dog's kind of doing whatever, and it's basically practicing things that make it more insecure. So I'm kind of defeating myself. So my management plan throughout my training progression has to enable uh, not allowing the dog to be insecure, not allowing the dog to be nervous in different situations, and constant focus on the 
part of the training progression that we're working on so that we can get to the socialization and distraction work phases uh, to finish that off. All right, next question. Any tips for a dog that isn't interested in his food? So we've talked about it a little bit already, but first of all, the first thing I would do, the focus at this point is to build up that dog's hunger drive. So what I do is only have food come from my hand, not from a bowl, no table scraps from your kids or your wife or your husband or whoever, right? So do not allow any of those types of things to happen. All food comes from your hand. If the dog's not interested in taking food from your hand, you know, give it, give it a day or so. So the dog starts to understand that's the only way they're going to access food. And if they're still not interested in taking food from you, mix in a higher value food, right? So what I've done in the past is I've cooked some steak before given it to a dog, right? Mixed in with their kibble. I've taken some like tuna or salmon, like a very fishy smelling uh, food to instigate that dog to get them started eating from my hand, right? And if you're like, well, that's disgusting to hold on to. Well, I have my goal with my dog. I want to hit that goal. My first step to hitting that goal is I need this dog to take food from me. So if holding tuna or salmon in my hand helps initiate my dog eating from my hand, it might take me one or two days of doing that. Then the dog is 100% comfortable eating from my hand. I'll do it. You know what I'm saying? And then fade that out, not use that in the long term, but in the short term, I would do that just to get it going, right? And then once you initiate that hunger drive, shouldn't be a problem after that. All right, next question. My dog always growls when having the tug in his mouth, and he violently shakes his head. I've learned that is not okay, but I don't understand why not. Can you help? So this is a very misunderstood response from a dog, right? And a lot of people say that this kind of thing is not okay. Basically, the guy or the girl is uh, playing tug with their dog or has a tug with their dog, and the dog is growling and shaking their head right? When they're playing tug. That's just the dog's genetic response to getting aroused. Your dog's just amped up about playing, right? Not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, it could be if your dog's trying to like be defensive or guard a resource, but you know, one of my own dogs does the same thing, you know, and I know that they're just aroused and we're having a good time. You know, it's not directed towards me. They're just into the game. It's not a big deal, right? If they're doing that outside the game, that could be a problem. But if I'm playing tug and they're growling and shaking their head, you know, they're thrashing, they're in prey drive, right? That's what they might be doing if they were holding on to a prey item, which just happens to be the tug right now. Think about like a sports team in the locker room. You know what I'm saying? They're in there, you know, they're getting amped, they're yelling, whatever. That's what your dog is doing when they're playing tug with you. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so just keep that in mind. It's not a big deal. You know what I'm saying? It's a perfectly normal behavior. I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about it. Your dog is aroused. All right. Next question. Our dog does this lunging and yelping when another dog is near. Really stresses me out big time. How do I fix this behavior? It's embarrassing. So the dog is lunging and yelping when another dog is near. It's stressing out the owner. Obviously, it's very stressful, right? So this kind of just goes back to what we've talked about a couple times is, uh, this is the dog's response to that stimuli to other dogs. So again, I have to change what I'm doing so that I can change my dog's behavior. So with that being said, if my dog sees another dog, starts 
lunging and yelping. It's getting aroused. It's getting excited. That's just kind of its energy leaking out. So I need to change that response. And ideally for me personally, I prefer that if my dog is uh, aroused or excited by something, it kind of shows me some attention. So just turn around and give me some eye contact, right? So how am I going to build that up? I'm going to be doing engagement. So I'm going to be doing engagement in my backyard, in my front yard. Then as I walk through the neighborhood, if I see another dog before my dog starts getting overly excited, I'll just initiate engagement with them so that they are learning that paying attention to me is better than paying attention to that dog. And over time, repetitiously, again, none of this stuff happens fast, but over time, repetitiously, that dog will stop uh, doing that around other dogs and it'll just start paying attention to me. So that's what you're going to be going for. All right. Next question. Do you have any tips for separation anxiety? I can't leave mine for five minutes without him barking. That's super annoying. So, uh, we need to again, change up our routines, change up what we're doing. So first thing I'm thinking of is, uh, implementing management and exercise. So if my dog as soon as I leave is barking, right? I got to change up my scenario of departure from my dog. So the first thing I'll be doing, probably implementing a kennel so that my dog learns that like that's where they're going to be at. Number two, for a couple days to a couple weeks, right before I leave, I'm going to be exercising my dog so they get tired. Then they go into the kennel to rest, right? That's going to be my first tactic, right? Um, to, to, kind of corral that dog and communicate to them that leaving is not a big deal. Separation is not a big deal, right? It's just a routine part of life. The other thing too, that can help with this is when you leave or when you arrive, like if you leave the house and arrive back to the house, just ignore your dog for like 15 minutes or so, or until they're calm. That way your dog isn't getting reinforced by you leaving or isn't getting anxious by you leaving. It's not getting reinforced for going crazy when you come home. And that should uh, help curtail that. All right, next question: How do you reward? How do you reward eye contact for a dog with bad vision and doesn't always know where to look? Good question. So, you know, uh, dogs—they have other senses. So I would harness those senses right in this question and this uh, scenario. How do you reward eye contact for a dog with bad vision? Doesn't always know where to look. So in this case, I'll probably use some kind of uh, sound signal. So if my dog has a cloudy vision <laughs> or it's an older dog, doesn't have good vision or a younger dog, uh, doesn't have good vision or, or a blind dog. We did a whole YouTube series on a blind dog. You can see what I did with him. But uh, so a dog with poor or no vision, I'm going to have some kind of sound indicator to let them know where I am. And the thing with this is you have to keep that sound indicator, that sound signal going until the dog actually is looking in your direction. So I'll make like some kind of, it has to be consistent every time too. Like you want to use the same sound. So it could be some kind of humming noise. It doesn't have to be very loud for a dog. It could be a very low, low key whistle. Could be clicking like, you know, clicking of your mouth or something like that. Could be your hands. Could be patting your leg like this. Can you hear that? You hear that? Right? So the dog hears that. You constantly make that noise. And then once they look in your direction, you stop. Good. Reward them. Right? And then you're basically replacing them having to look at you with just communicating where where they should direct their head at. 
And so that's going to, that signal is going to be your long-term cue to get them to look in your direction. Right? So that's what you need to use for that. All right. Last question. Are dogs born more dominant or submissive? Does it have to do with their breed? So yes, in the dog world, there is dominance, there is submission. That's going to come down to primarily that dog's genetics. So yes, when they're born, they generally will be more dominant or more submissive, but then that is continually formulated uh, throughout that dog's early living, that dog's early experiences with their mother, with their litter mates, or the other dogs that they're around, right? So the dog's mother is super important, right? If you get a puppy from a mother that's super dominant, the puppy is more likely to be more dominant even if genetically they weren't that dominant, right? If you get a mother that's super submissive, super scared, in general, that puppy's going to be more submissive or more scared, even if genetically they were less submissive or less scared, right? So that's just something to keep in mind. Uh, so yes, in general, they are born more dominant or more submissive, but it's also formulated by their early living, their early environment. So if you're thinking about getting a puppy from a breeder, I would definitely recommend checking out that breeder, checking out what they do for the first uh, couple couple days, couple weeks with that dog, um, making sure that everything they do is uh, designed to help build that dog's confidence as much as possible, right? You don't want a, a scenario where the dog is you know, confidence not able to be built properly based on its early learning. The second part of the question, does it have to do with their breed? In general, no, right? Every dog uh, is a dog, no matter what kind of breed it is, it's going to come down to that dog's parents. So you want to look at the dad, you want to look at the mom, see how they behave, see how they act. In general, that's going to be probably what your puppy is like, okay? Um, so if you have a mom and dad that's super insecure, super submissive in general, the puppies that come from those parents are going to be more submissive, more insecure. If you have a mom and dad that's super confident, super dominant in general, you're going to have puppies that are going to be more confident, more dominant, right? So, you know, for me, if I'm looking for a pet dog, I'm looking for a mother specifically, I'm looking more at the mother than the father, but I want a mother that's social, right? Can be interacted with by adults and children, no problem, can interact with other dogs, no problem, that mother is going to be raising that puppy like she is, right? But if she's scared of things, if she's hiding in corners, if she's scared of noises or children or stuff like that, probably not ideal, right? So that's just something that I'm looking at. If the mother is overbearing, wants to constantly correct other dogs or overbearing on other dogs in general, right? Uh, that's going to be that can be somewhat difficult to work with um, if your puppy develops those traits. So just keep that in mind as well. So, um, but that goes through all the questions we had today. Any other questions, Bunny? Uh, trying to think off the top of my head. Uh, I don't think anything major state. They all kind of cycle, circle around the same general yeah. topics. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, all I know is that there's a lot of comments on that. The same question with the insecure dog. Why are you correcting him? If he's insecure and scared, there's a lot of people bringing up uh, the facts or they thought that you were flooding. That's what the term they would use. Yeah. This insecure dog, you're flooding him. You're flooding him with correcting him. You're flooding him with uh, putting him in these situations. Well, flooding is a, uh, it's a <coughs> method of psychology. But basically, flooding is, <clears throat> let's say you have a dog 
that is scared of trash cans. You just expose them to trash cans to the point where the dog overcomes that because it's just overly exposed to them, right? But flooding can also backtrack on you, right? It can also work against you in some cases. But flooding can be used, right? It is one of the things that does happen with extremely insecure dogs, especially if they won't take food. Even if you've maximized trying to build up their food drive, you might have to just expose them to things so they just constantly get used to them. So there is an element of flooding going on, and the people that are talking about it uh, in the sense of you're, you're flooding them with the people, you're flooding them with the environment, like that is the correct phraseology and usage of the term flooding, but you don't flood a dog with corrections. You know what I'm saying? What you're doing is you're keeping that dog accountable to the position that it knows, and then you expose it to those higher distracting places because what I'm thinking about as a trainer that dog's safety long term if the owner you know walks that dog through a through a busy area I want that dog to know to stay with the owner versus try to run away from the owner you know what I'm saying because the dog is overly scared so the the default behavior on the dog should be stay in position stay with the owner you know stay there even if you're a little bit insecure even if you're highly insecure the best thing for you to do is stay with your person in the position that they asked you to be in, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that was yeah. that was everything. Yeah. All right. Good to go. So, yeah, we definitely appreciate all the comments and the questions and all that. So, please keep giving us those. We'll try to answer them the best we can. Probably do some more of these to try and tap into new ones. Also trying to uh, make sure that we refer to other podcasts or videos that we've done on YouTube that have a deeper dive on some of these topics. That way, if you guys want to go and look into those deeper dives, you can, you know, and of course, if you need our help, you can reach out to us. Pack Talk Podcast is sponsored by Canine Revolution Dog Training. You know, so if you're in the United States, if you're in South Carolina, right, we are in South Carolina, but we do train dogs from all over the country. So reach out to us. All we have to do is work out the transportation from here to there, wherever you're at. We can definitely help you out. Um, If you want to support the podcast, you can go to the link below. Go to Amazon get you a good-to-go shirt or a good-to-go hoodie so you can be good to go. You can also grab a Canine Revolution apparel shirt or hoodie, right? So you can uh, wear that around. Good to go. Support the podcast. And then last but not least, if you want to support America, right, go to originusa.com, originmain.com, jockofuel.com. And uh, these are products made in America by Americans, right? So we're trying to bring the uh, American manufacturing back to America, American economy back to America. We don't want to be using slave labor like some places overseas use. We want to use um, Americans, right? We want to support Americans, right? Hardworking Americans. So go to originmain.com. Go to jockofuel.com for your supplements or your energy drinks or whatever things that are good for you right? And uh, you can get jeans, you can get boots, you can get belts, you can get your supplements, you'll be good to go. And the promo code for that is SINGER101, that gets you 10% off. So support America, support yourself, use the promo code, and uh, get after it. Um, But otherwise, we've got some other podcasts planned out coming out, we've got some more guests coming, we've got some more dog training topics coming, right? More conversations happening, so we appreciate all feedback, all support, and until next time, out.